I'm John Mooney and welcome to The Dark State. This podcast is brought to you through the generous financial support of our subscribers on Patreon and Apple Podcasts. If you wish to contribute and gain access to more exclusive episodes, please do subscribe. And now, on with the show. They haven't gone away, you know. Loyalist paramilitaries are making their presence felt once again. The UDA, the UVF and the Red Hand Commando are united in their opposition to the Northern Ireland Protocol. They say it weakens the union between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. This week we return to the subject of loyalist terrorism. Are they still a threat? And could we see the emergence of a new dissident loyalist group in the coming months? I'm John Mooney. Welcome to The Dark State. To discuss this topic, I am joined by Dr. Aaron Edwards from the Royal Military Academy at Sandhurst. Aaron, welcome to The Dark State. Thank you for having me, John. Aaron, could I ask you the following? Where are loyalist paramilitary groups at the moment following the introduction of the Northern Ireland Protocol? I think loyalist paramilitaries are going through a period of transition at the moment. For the past few years, they've been involved in this process whereby they have been um, uh, committed to the peace process, where they have been committed to the transition of their members um, beyond paramilitarism. This is the sort of language that they've been using. And uh, unfortunately, uh, events have intervened. And we've seen with Brexit and Northern Ireland Protocol, uh, a, a bit of a vote fast for some loyalist paramilitary groups. So what I mean by that is that, um, of course, they are in public, they are committed to the peace process, but in private, it's clear that they are trying to mop up some disaffection in their own areas, these areas that they have controlled um, in terms of territory, in terms of people, for, for many, many years, for decades. And, uh, and so we are in a very interesting situation where publicly they are committed to um, observing you know, peace uh, and and monitoring the peace and ensuring that their members do not involve themselves in paramilitary activity. In the main, attacking the other community. In the main, um, engaging in murder and maiming and mayhem. But uh, that doesn't mean uh, that they are not engaged in other activities. So what we are seeing is um, the resurgence almost of loyalist paramilitary groups in trying to exert control and to gain uh, control over these mounting protests that we see against the Northern Ireland Protocol. So we see loyalist paramilitaries almost becoming relevant again um, because the political climate has ensured that they have new life breathed into them. Have they become factionalised? Is there competing leaderships vying for control of these organisations? Well, the, the short answer is yes, um, but the longer answer is they've always been factionalised and we tend to see loyalist paramilitary groups according to hierarchies. In fact, we look at most groups in Ireland and elsewhere according to hierarchies and that they have a leadership and the leadership keeps the uh, coherence of the message to the members, the ideology there. It's you know it, it's a custodian almost of that, um, that the membership renews itself. I mean, these groups haven't gone away in almost 30 years since the ceasefires, you know, they have maintained a presence. It's not um, simply the case that it is a, you know, full of older men um, and some older women. Um, It's actually the case that we have teenagers 
uh, in these groups now today in 2021, which suggests that they have maintained their um, presence not only in their own areas, in their respective areas, there's plenty of evidence there to suggest that they are recruiting, that they are maintaining a presence, that they are engaging in community policing, but not on uh, the level, surely, of the troubles. However, I think that it's important to recognise that the security environment has fundamentally changed in the past 25 to 30 years, uh, and uh, loyalist paramilitary groups have changed with it, and that means that some of them, some of the leadership, some of the members... Um, it's impossible to know how many are involved in organized crime or what would pass as organized crime in other parts of the world. But I think that it's more complex than that. I think that the uh, the security environment, globalization has meant that these groups have had to adapt and survive um, and they've had to compete with new groups that have uh, emerged, you know, new transnational organized crime groups. And that means that these old groups actually, uh, not only do they have the surety of, of the support in certain pockets, you know, of, of well, particularly working class deprived areas, but that they actually um, exert control over other groups. And we've, we've plenty of evidence there. It's, it's covered um, in, uh, by journalists such as yourself about, you know, how they tax drug dealers, how they actually, you know, engage in what would pass uh, for extortion, um, protection rackets. You know, so they, they are doing the things that they always used to do, but they're doing new things as well. And I think that that's, that's an important um, point to make, actually, as we look at these groups today, that if the security environment has changed, it's not the case that they have remained the same. They have adapted as well. You're painting a very uh, complex picture there. Do the leaders of these various groups or entities, do they see themselves as political or criminal? Do they see themselves as supporters of uh, political institutions or do they see themselves as groups that uh, tolerate this but as long as they can continue with their more criminal activities? Well, I think it's, again, it's important to reiterate, you know, what we have seen in the media. Publicly, they remain political. They are committed to the peace process, yet they tolerate the, in private these activities that in any part of the world would be designated as criminal activity. So um, it's it's a very complex picture because I think these people are very complex. It's, it's certainly the case that at the very top, they remain committed to the peace process, they remain committed to the political process, but that they are existing in a very grey place, a very, uh, uh, you know, unusual space, that they are really, they haven't had uh, much of a raison d'etre for 25 years since they called a halt to their campaigns, and then since 2009 when the UVF and UDA, uh, you know, disarmed, uh, and when they committed themselves to going out of business. I mean, they've remained there. They've com- they've, they've actually recruited younger members. So the, the logic that they follow themselves, I think, is quite uh, unusual. And some would say it's illogical or irrational um, that on the one hand, they can be committed to polit- politics. They can demand. We've heard them uh, regularly on the, on the airwaves um, through spokespeople saying that if the police have evidence, then they should arrest those engaged in criminality. It's not as simple as that. Being in a paramilitary organization is an illegal thing. You know, it's an illegal pursuit. It's a minority sport. And it's very difficult to designate someone as being in a paramilitary group unless they, um, you know, they avow themselves 
as being a member of that group. So we, we live in a very grey area and that's why it's difficult to really say anything with concrete certainty. And, uh, and that leaves us in a, in a quite a vulnerable place, I think. Society, unfortunately, sees these groups operating. They are still there. Um, I was back in Belfast uh, just a few weeks ago, and you know, it's evident that these groups exist, that they are still operating uh, on various levels. So they haven't gone out of business, and that begs the question, you know, what is their purpose today? And I think that if we look at the Northern Ireland Protocol, we see them slowly regaining some of that lost uh, raison d'etre, and that's very dangerous, I think, for society um, as we try to move beyond the troubles. Are these groups a subculture within Northern Ireland society? This is something I'm personally very interested in. I often wonder, have these terrorist organisations mutated into something else that's not fully understood? Do you have any thoughts on that? That's a great way to put it. I think they have mutated and I think that they have unfortunately um, become very difficult to control. The, the state, you know, where is the state in all of this? The state and its um, intelligence and security agencies, um, you know, the police, law enforcement, they have been battling against these groups for years now. Um, and uh, I think that, unfortunately, as we, you know, sit in the centennial year of, of Northern Ireland, it's difficult not to make uh, comparisons with the early years of the Northern Ireland uh, state and the, the Craig government where, um, you know, at the formation of Northern Ireland itself, these groups existed. Unfortunately, they went under different headings, uh, the Ulster Protestant Association, Empire Loyalists, and so on. There were several of them. There were local vigilante groups that were formed in places like Armagh um, and elsewhere. And, um, you know, we see these types of groups exist throughout history. And, uh, and the state is always trying to wrest control from them because they do control small, very localised areas so what you know the the old Stormont government did was it simply um, recruited them into the uh, the Ulster Special Constabulary um, and tried to channel that vigilanteism that you know idea of taking the law into your own hands to try and channel that in a more lawful direction and I think that um, you know it's been said by by a number of commentators that uh, you know essentially what happened in the 1970s again was that the, the you know that was seeded almost either through bad decision-making or deliberately, actually, to some of these groups where they then held ground, held territory and people uh, in, their, in their grip for many, many years. So, actually, these groups, they exist almost as a shadow um, state, you know, in, in certain pockets. I'm not saying this is the case throughout Northern Ireland. Of course it's not. But I think that we do see them emboldened in very marginalised areas and they have a profile there. It is, as you said, rightly, uh, it's a subculture, and uh, that subculture isn't very well understood. I think that there's quite a lot of uh, factors that go into producing that subculture, but there's no doubt in my mind it's there. It's there not only in the symbolism on the walls, uh, but in the discourse of everyday life. It's funny you say that, because I see the same thing happening within dissident republicanism, where a lot of people who are becoming involved in that, it's never quite clear why they're doing that um, what prompts them to engage in that. I'm not entirely convinced it's all political. Sometimes I think it, it provides them with status within their communities. And other times I think it's just tradition. It's that people from certain communities, families, uh, 
backgrounds that they are drawn towards these or secret organizations because that's what is culturally acceptable within their communities and it's something that that I've often uh, feel is very much overlooked in all of this that maybe there's some uh, overemphasis placed on the terrorist aspect of these groups and their political um, uh, leanings rather than something else that maybe isn't quite defined or clearly understood. I don't know whether you agree with me on that, but it's just for, as a bystander watching this on, on both sides of the community in Northern Ireland, it, 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 it can sometimes uh, be very clear uh, and very obvious uh, when you stand back and look at it. Yeah, and I think that, um, you know, if we break it down into very simple languages, like role models that you see in various walks of life in different parts of the world, um, they they will all look very different. Um, some may have celebrity status, some will be very local uh, and uh, based on, you know, a street or, or a housing estate. And, um, you know, these people are very popular in very localized uh, circumstances and environments where there isn't really that many uh, life opportunities for, for younger people. And unfortunately, you know, the first thing I did when I saw rioting take place, um, you know, in my local area yet again, um, a clock fern corner and, you know, just outside North Belfast there, I looked at actually some of the, the demographics. And, uh, you know, it's really sad to see that it's not just the demographics, but it's um, deprivation uh, we're talking about, you know, life opportunities really for young people, and they're in certain respects they're absent, and uh, those life opportunities, and so they find excitement, they find, uh, as I've said, you know, they find lo- role models to look up to. I mean, it's very, it's a very social dynamic. You would find it in other places, but unfortunately, it takes on a political connotation uh, in the north, and also, uh, you know, that. The groups themselves are quite powerful, and um, they are powerful. They can, in, in many respects, they hold, uh, you know, life and death. And the power of one individual, one local commander, for example, could decide to um, to to have someone exiled. Now, I mean, this is all very interesting, I think, from an academic perspective. But I was reminded earlier this year um, of a friend uh, from school who who told me that. Um, you know, business that he worked for gone out of business because, uh, not because of the pandemic, not because of austerity over the years it's battered local businesses, but because uh, a local loyalist paramilitary group decided that um, they had done an investigation. Um, you know, they're almost um, comic-like, Cluzo-like, and uh, they'd done an investigation. They found that someone had, who had worked or allegedly worked in that uh, local uh, business was dealing drugs um, and you know I wonder if it was simply that he hadn't been paying his uh, protection money um, hadn't or he refused to be taxed by that loyalist paramilitary group whatever the, the, the case um, you know that person then had to leave or be shot uh, in the leg or have something else happen to him uh, and uh, the business it just it folded after that uh, so, you know, this is having a very localised impact, I think, and it's difficult for us to see uh, that in, in the national headlines because, you know, it's not of much interest to, to people in other parts of the world. But as I've said, it, once you sort of connect these local incidents and the impact up, you find actually quite a patchwork quilt of um, a broken society and a place that, that really has difficulties moving beyond paramilitarism because it's just a way of life. 
what you've describing there is almost uh, a mafia-like organization and I can't help but think of people that live in Sicily and they would view uh, the Cosa Nostra in the same light as it's an organization that they can go to to resolve disputes but that organization can turn on them and kill them and uh, inflict awful injuries through the use of violence against them. What is the standing of these groups within the loyalist community? And when I say loyalist community, I mean the working class, uh, good Protestant people of uh, Northern Ireland. What what were they generally regarded by law-abiding citizens up there? Well, I think it's we have mixed feelings there. I mean, it would be very easy for me to say one way or another, it's, um, you know, they're feared, uh, or, you know, they're hated. Um, but I think it's a mix of both. I, I actually have come across people who have said once those paramilitary groups disband, there will be a queue up that street, um, for people to, uh, wreak revenge on, on some of these paramilitary godfathers for what they have done to their own community. I mean, that, that's another factor. I think it's very important to see what's happening in Northern Ireland in that light because we, you know, these, um, people have been around and empowered and in, and in some respects, actually, when you see the peace process and what's happened there, the peace process itself has actually empowered some of these people, uh, and, uh, given them titles. Or given them, you know, stature, I should say, more than titles, and uh, and and you know, and has actually um, paid for some of these people to live almost split personality lives, driven lives. So on one hand, they are, you know, some sort of community leader, savior, and on the other hand, they are a paramilitary thug. So you know, and they exist in the same person, and that's what a lot of people find very difficult to understand. But that that they have. Um, you know, a face for the community. They have a face for the media. They've different faces for different people. Um, and uh, but what we're talking about is the same beast. You know, um, and yes, it engages in organised crime. Occasionally, it engages in engages in community policing. With inverted commas, you know that the horrible sort of um, way of maiming and murdering people within their own community. You know, to establish that kind of um, stature, I think it's underestimated and it's often dismissed. And I think, you know, to look at that really um, in all its its horrible glory, I think is important because we see that they aren't going out of business anytime soon, despite the commitments they've given. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the repeated lines I've heard narratives over the past two decades has been, um, you know, we need assistance, we need uh, help to transform. And when they're given help to transform, you know, they don't take it. So, I question really not only the motives, but the um, the willingness, I suppose, of, of these groups to actually willingly go out of business. Um, you know, I don't think that they are um, going to, to disappear overnight. And what I see uh, unfolding at present moment is that the groups are trying to control, wrest control of these spontaneous protest movements uh, and channel that in a more orderly fashion, which can be useful, I think, in terms of state agencies and how they try to, you know, control these groups and keep them stable. Um, but also, I think that it can ha- have really uh, unfortunate consequences for the people who live in those areas. Is there a danger of a new dissident loyalist paramilitary group emerging from the opposition to the Northern Ireland Protocol and this wider protest movement against that? 
that's a great question, and I think it's an important question. How I would answer that is I would um, urge people to think about this in terms of extremism and terrorism. Now, it's not universally accepted by academics that the idea of extremists and terrorists can be broken down and separated, but I think what we see around the Northern Ireland Protocol is a lot of extremism. I would use the term radicalization, but that's not something that is accepted by, say, for example, police service of Northern Ireland. Um, I think they would probably bulk at, at the use of the term radicalization. But nevertheless, what we see is a, almost like a, a pyramid where someone starts off um, on one side of it, they move to the top, they become increasingly more extreme, uh, and then they move down the other side of, of this first pyramid and up to the top of the second one. And the second one is about terrorism. And I think once people move up to that point, it's a point of no return, and that's where they engage in terrorism. It's, you know, it's the, I think we can debate where people are on the two pyramids model, but essentially there's an awful lot of extremism happening there. The big question is, will that translate into active terrorism? So will, it, will we see hoax, bomb uh, threats? Will we see bomb attacks? Will we see shootings? What will we see? How will that... Um, manifest itself in a violent manner. Uh, I think that it's it's anyone's guess how that might happen. But I think that what loyalists have had to, and those who have become uh, radicalised, have had to try and work out in their own minds um, is who they should be uh, directing that negative energy towards, and and uh, that you know not only the disaffection but also that um, you know the hatred, the venom, the stuff that really does matter for people when they take that step and they become a terrorist problem. So I think that we, we are somewhere in the middle at the moment and um, it will be interesting to see how, what form that takes. I would I would suggest if you're looking for a kind of form, what way might terrorism take, I think that the, the first question is to ask, you know, who are they going to direct it against? And the sort of language, the radical language, the extreme language I'm hearing from some loyalists is that Dublin is to blame, um, and that is you know something that you would have probably heard in the 1990s, actually, throughout the Troubles, um, if that kind of, if young impressionable people can be made to um, think of a you know target and direct that energy towards, then we have no idea really how they will set off on that path. I would suspect that actually having looked at a number of groups around the world that we already see, we are probably behind the scenes um, have no access to, to intelligence from state agencies, but I would imagine that they, the police on both sides of the, the you know, the, the border, so to speak, are, are looking at um, individuals, persons of interest and where they are meeting, what they are discussing and also what they are talking about in terms of how they will make that, um, you know, terrorist campaign a reality. Now, we see that in relation to dissident Republicans. I don't think we can totally rule it out in relation to loyalists. And I wouldn't necessarily refer to them as dissident loyalists. I think, you know, militant loyalists, um, uh, you know, it might be a better term. And the reason why I say that is I just don't think that we are going to see the creation of a new group. I think we're going to see what we saw in the 1990s, which is a fragmentation of the bigger loyalist groups. We are going to see like-minded people getting together uh, and uh, plotting. Now, whether that uh, you know moves beyond simply talking and extremism, uh, as I've said, it's, it's anyone's guess. But who, who could they attack? I mean, their background has been involved in primarily carrying out attacks 
on uh, Republicans and people from the nationalist community, surely uh, they would understand that if they were engaged in that type of activity, they, they would become complete pariahs within society, within Northern Ireland, and it would possibly erode some of their support, or, or am I mistaken in assuming that? No, I think that they're they are pariahs in relation to you know the unionist community generally. I, I did say at the outset it's a minority sport. I think terrorism is a minority sport. I know that we do see a lot of people kind of supporting this in Ireland, um, you know, turning up at murals and supporting what may be considered to be you know a more violent sort of ideology. Uh, but I think that we're really talking about small numbers of people here. Um, and, you know, the, the term that was used in relation to dissident Republicans for a long time was micro groups. Um, they are very small in number. Um, they are pariahs. They don't care. They really don't, uh, you know, understand, I think, the broader political kind of machinations, the geopolitics or anything else connected to this. So all they will see is what uh, they have been fed. So I think that it's important to look at the kind of social media-driven narratives out there. You know, they facilitate people to engage in terrorism quicker than anything else. I think those narratives, um, once they start joining the dots, um, people will finish that process in their own heads, even if it's very simplistic. You know, they aren't exactly... You know, we, we can compare the sorts of people who engage in militant, loyalist or republican activities with other groups around the world, we see a certain sort of socioeconomic, uh, you know, they, they emerge from a certain socioeconomic uh, position in society, you know, uh, generally speaking, they aren't, um, you know, that well educated because there is a structural disadvantage in that community. You know, we can put together a kind of a broad profile, but generally I think that the people who will emerge will be those, I mean those people who, if they engage in violent activity will be considered, you know, the lowest of the low in that society, in that community anyway. Um, and that's a sad thing, really, because we're seeing um, quite vulnerable people, disaffected people, um, you know, they are willingly buying into this without questioning what they're being fed by the media or by, you know, nefarious actors and, and uh, you know, the cyber domain. So, uh, unfortunately, that's where we are at. I can't say anything with any greater certainty than that, uh, other than there are disaffected people in paramilitary organisations, and the big question is, will they take that next step uh, and, um, and form another group, or carry out attacks like we saw in the early 2000s for the red, under the flag of convenience of the Red Hand Defenders? You know, a lot of attacks in the late 1990s attributed to the LVF, the word actually the LVF, you know, UVF and UDA were engaged in murder uh, and maim, maiming and attacks uh, and, uh, and you know, law enforcement simply just did not attribute it to them. So I think that there is a lot of um, confusion, um, complexity, but I, I, I do believe that, um, you know, this, the social dynamic there will be, will be the same. You will find, you know, younger people being groomed by older people, you know, quite in, in a similar way to what we see in terms of dissident republicanism. Um, and uh, I think that younger, more impressionable people, disaffected people in those loyalist areas will look up to older men, typically. Uh, and uh, and it's the older men that we, you know, we probably need to keep an eye on because it's the sort of narratives that they are feeding to the younger people that facilitate this terrorism. If you were advising the Irish and the British government on 
what measures to take to try maybe contain this or to offset any potential security problems? What would you say to them? Well, I guess in light of um, my new uh, my new book, which is uh, Agents of Influence, I think that uh, you know human intelligence really can only go so far. So, in terms of meeting this with a security response, you know you've got human sources in these groups, covert human intelligence sources in these groups, undoubtedly uh, in these groups um, at the top, middle, and the bottom, uh, and, uh, and and that is one way of doing it. But it's not it's not a strategy. I mean, that's just a method. Um, you know, I think that leaderships have a tendency to tell people uh, in government what they want to hear. Uh, and I think that uh, what we've seen with this sort of slight outbreak of violence back in April was that uh, this can sometimes come from the bottom. So I think that it's important to analyze what's going on in those areas from the bottom up rather than the top down. And uh, and I suppose in terms of bringing you know, this to an end. The only way you can really deal with extremism is through a developmental agenda as well as a security one. So that would mean that, you know, we do have to essentially take away uh, the vari- the variables that give rise to extremism and terrorism in the first place. And uh, unfortunately, it's, it's so seeped into the culture uh, in Northern Ireland that that is a very difficult thing to do. You're talking about unraveling, you know, many, many decades years of, um, you know, groups, paramilitary groups, terrorist groups, call them what you will, weaving themselves into the social fabric of society. So I think that it's a big challenge, but certainly security-wise, you know, you might you might take certain people out of the equation. They might end up in prison, uh, but that doesn't necessarily deal with the problem. And, uh, and I think that political leadership, um, you know, power sharing, working, uh, and actually working for people at the bottom of society as well as those in the middle and the top. It's the only way really forward to, you know, in, in, in um, you know, taking the, the wind out of the seals of this violence or prospective violence. And that concludes today's edition of The Dark State. If you enjoyed this episode, we would appreciate it if you could tell a friend or post a review. I hope you will join us again next week.